Welcome to the Uncommon History Podcast, your go-to source for fascinating stories from the past. On our podcast, we explore more obscure and often overlooked corners of history. From lesser-known tales to weird facts about history, our mission is to share the stories that will leave you surprised and entertained. Join us as we discover a world of history you didn't know existed. The podcast that explores the fascinating and lesser-known stories of the past. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, we are episode four, mm-hmm. season four. Yes. Can you believe that we've been doing this for four seasons? Well, it's been fun. It, time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, and I know a lot of people are always asking, when are you going to do another episode? When are you going to do another episode? But uh, it takes a lot of time to prepare one episode. I mean, we, we're probably, what, four hours or four and a half, five hours just to do an episode. Each, yeah. each for each one of us. Yeah. For the research, and then, you know, we have to sit down and record it, and then after it's over, you know, it has to be edited and put together and music and all those things. So there's it's a lot just like do. It's like everything that you ever do, there's always more to it than you think when you when you start doing it. You just, you just don't sit down and start telling stories very easily. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> you can for a little while. Then you start running out of stories, don't you? Yeah. So, yeah. But so it's been fun, though. I, I've yeah. enjoyed it. I've learned oh, a lot. I've loved and, it. I've loved you know, it. I talk to people. I run into people everywhere. Oh, I listen to your podcast. And I'm like, really? You know, it surprises me how many people just listen to it. I mean, you were telling me that a, a school. Yes, and I'll give a shout-out to them. I think it's Mercer County Schools. And one of the fellow I used to work with, a friend of mine, uh, came home. Uh, his daughter came home and said that they were listening listen to one of the podcasts or some of the podcasts in their class. And I was just, of all the compliments and, and neat things to hear about our podcast, that was one of the best things I've ever heard because I, I love for young people to learn about history. And that's one of the reasons we work so hard to do it and try to do it right and do it accurately and, you know, uh, that, but that was just real gratifying to me that these young people, probably the great, most gratifying thing I've heard s- since we've started. You know, it does, because I, I as well have a great love of history and to think that we're influencing a ne- the next generation on how important history is to not only who we are today, but w- who we used to be, who we're going to be in the future as a society. So uh, it tickles me to death to hear that there's a class using, sure. using our podcast. And, you know, we're only as good as our sources. If you weren't there, yeah. you know, if you didn't witness it yourself, you're taking some accounts, it could be several or, or one, to, uh, to describe the event. And, you know, we do our best to use those sources that are accurate, and don't exaggerate, and, and who knows, you know, we, but we do our best. Yeah. But that's real gratifying to hear that this class is using our podcast. Well, sh- shout out to them then. Yes. So uh, do you have a Today in Kentucky history for us? Yes. In, in 1813, General Glenn, excuse me, let's start over. 1813, General Green Clay led a force of 3,000 Kentuckians uh, in the battle of, where it led them with General Harrison, in the Battle of the Thames in the War of 1812. Okay. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Brian, and maybe I've mentioned this before, but there was a passion in Kentucky to when the War of 1812 broke out. For some reason, Kentuckians seemed to furnish as many or more troops than anyone, and they were just infuriated with the British. And uh, I know a town in Nicholasville, Kentucky, one of the legislators from that town voted against going to war and they they had to intervene or they were the the people were going to hang him really <laughs> i mean well, there was i don't understand i don't know what that you know kentucky i think has a reputation world war ii didn't we have more soldiers 
Well, there's some sure. connection there that, that fought in World War II than any other state. You know, I'm, I wish I knew. I don't. In the Mexican War, I know we furnished right a lot of troops and made a, a majority other than any other state. Now, there's other states, obviously, but I think we did more per state maybe than anyone else. Yeah. But it may be because we were settled longer, and there's other reasons. But, right. uh, but anyway, that's interesting. In 1850, the Ellenin Railroad uh, was chartered and secured a line from guess where? Uh, Louisville? L- 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 Louisville to Nashville. Um, you and I grew up along that railroad all we our did. life, didn't we? Yeah. In 1861, two Kentuckians were appointed by President Lincoln to his cabinet. Do you know who they were, Brian? This is going to be hard. I wouldn't think you'd know. But Ask me that might. again. Two Kentuckians, President Lincoln, appointed to his cabinet. Uh, I'm going to say one of them was um, Clay, Marsh, um, not him? Nope. Sent him to Russia as ambassador to Russia. Is that is that a cabinet? That's not a cabinet appointment, is it? That's an ambassador it's, appointment. It's a, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, then I'm going to say I don't know. Okay. Joseph Holt and Montgomery Blair. Now, those are not household I names. Don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know either one of them. Yeah. And in 2006, George Clooney, a native Kentuckian, won an Oscar for a supporting actor in Syriana. Huh. So. Another Kentucky tie there. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, I have a, a really a neat book, and it has a chapter in it called The Mysteries of Mammoth Cave. Okay. And so we haven't done anything, I don't think, on Mammoth Cave. I don't know if we've talked about it at all on our podcast, but uh, Brian, have you been? Have you visited Mammoth Cave? I have, and it's been uh, several years ago. Okay. I go by it all the time, but um, I haven't. Um, I haven't been there probably since I was in college, maybe or high school. Well, I bet a lot of our listeners have. Yeah. I mean, it's a very popular place, and every time I've been there, it is. I mean, every tour sometimes are sold out. And mm-hmm. they do they do a great job down there, and their lines are backed up to buy tickets, and you have to plan ahead. And sometimes you'd be, probably be better off to go online and purchase your tickets ahead of time. And and I'm not speaking for them, but I'm just saying my experience is it's a very busy place, a very popular place. It's a great place to go about the middle of August when yes. it's 100 degrees outside, and the cave is really cool and comfortable. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about more about that. Yeah. But it lies, for those that don't know and have never been there or don't even hardly know where Kentucky is, it lies in the southwestern part of Kentucky. And it's the largest cave complex in the world. And, Brian, off the top of your head, do you know how many miles of cave there is there? Uh, I'm going to say 300. You're getting warm, but you're short. 600. Well, there's 420, and that 420, eight miles have just added to it in 2021. So just a couple years ago, year and a half ago, they were still discovering new channels, new caves within the cave complex. Now, if you drive in that area uh, around Cave City, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. all that whole area down there, it looks like the craters on the moon. If you people have never noticed the landscape down there, they're what we call sinkholes. Or there's there's huge sinkholes. Some of them so big that trees grow up in them. You can barely see the top of the trees, and it's just amazing topography when you drive through that area. It is. Uh, it's I'm, I'm always country. I love it country. I, I've always have and always will. Now Native Americans started using that as much as four thousand years ago, so human activity in the cave has been dated back. 4,000 years. Possibly they were looking for, uh, I don't, uh, who knows? 
it was a it was certainly a mystical place. I think anybody that found it or was around it would be fascinated. A huge opening, the main opening in yeah. it is huge, and you, you go you don't have to go back very far to you to you go into a, a, a huge room that's just uh, unimaginable. I always remember the. Um the fat man's misery, the little yes. the part you had to squeeze through. Yes. I do remember that. Yes, and I got through here a while back. It, <laughs> it is not easy. We took the grandkids down there, and they just loved it. I mean, they, they went back. You know, we had to go on home, but they stayed and went back the next day. They wanted to do two trips. Uh, of course, with the Native Americans used primitive torches. See, that's very dangerous to get back in a cave, and, and if you've ever been in there when they turn the lights out, it is dark. Yeah. You cannot see anything. You can't see anything. So the, the torches, you know, were were not real dependable. Right. So you could really get in trouble. You could get lost back in there. There was also several mummies found in there uh, in the deep recesses. Um, these were from some Native Americans that we don't know what or why, whether they were a sacrificial thing, whether they got back in there and they their torches went out. They got lost. Who knows? But there have been several mummies found there. They used to display those, but now they don't do that anymore. Um, but uh, the, the, we say that the first white people that found the cave found it by accident. And there was a guy that was hunting, and his dog chased a bear in there. And he went down to follow the dogs and found the cave. And that goes back to the story you've told before. If the bear goes in the cave, I, who's going in after him? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, you always take somebody bear hunting with you. Yeah, exactly. And you always pick somebody that's slower than you yeah. in case that you run into the bear. You don't and, have to be the fastest, but exactly. you just don't want to be the slowest. Right, right. right. <laughs> the first owner of the cave claimed 200 acres uh, of land that went with the cave. The property changed hands several times. I don't want to bore people with all that. But anyway, in 1810, the owner began moving uh, saltpeter from the cave. Now, do you know what saltpeter is? Yes. I know it was used in making um, black powder. Gunpowder. Gunpowder. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually bat dung. Guano. Guano, right. And so it, and that was a huge inter- industry here in Kentucky. Uh, the, matter of fact, he's talking about the War of 1812. We were the largest supplier of black powder in the nation at that time. Really? Yes, and, and, and one of the reasons is because... Of Mammoth Cave? Of ca- that and other caves. Right, yeah. And, you know, people would actually go in these caves, not only Mammoth Cave but other caves, and they would uh, dig this guano and they would take it and sell it. There were stores that dealt in it. And there was a couple of industries in Kentucky that's long forgotten, and one is ginseng mm-hmm. and the other is guano or... Bat dung. I believe I'd rather hunt ginseng. It'd be it'd be a lot less smellier proposition, <laughs> yeah. I would think. Yeah. But anyway, uh, as the war ended, the demand for that went down. So the cave did not mine it, but a certain period of time, and I'm sure they used a lot of it that was in there. Uh, then there was a tuberculosis outbreak, and they called it back then consumption. Right. And in 1830. Uh, an attorney named uh, Glasgow attorney named Franklin Gorin bought the cave and he realized it uh, as a, a possible tourist attraction uh, he purchased the property uh, and he developed roads to the cave which weren't there then now we got to remember this was before railroads or whatever so there was no mass wagons no, no way of people just horse and buggy and yeah. so forth um, 
Now, he hired a young man, and this is a fascinating character. And uh, matter of fact, I saw a play that was based on him at uh, Pioneer Playhouse a couple years ago. And his name was 16-year-old slave named Stephen Bishop. And he was the first uh, expert, supposedly, guide in Mammoth Cave. He was a spelunker. Yes. And he, he pretty much devoted his whole life to take, giving tours in that cave. Uh, he explored new passages. He added two or three or four miles to the known routes at that time. Uh, Nobody would, you know, at this time with that type of, you basically had lanterns and candle lanterns, things like that. People don't realize how dangerous this was. You know, there's places in Mammoth Cave that you could step the wrong way and fall two or three hundred feet. There was this one place called the Bottomless Pit, and he was the first person to ever cross it. No one ever was brave enough or skilled enough to be able to get across it. Uh, he also discovered Echo River. And I, I remember, I don't think they do that anymore, but I remember uh, going down in the cave and we actually got in a boat and floated down Echo River. Uh, he also found the albino fish, you know, the fish right. that have no eyes that are white, that have never developed eyes because they didn't need them. He was also the first person to, to map the cave, uh, and he ended up mapping about 20 miles of the cave. Wow. So at that time, I think that was a tremendous achievement with, yeah. the, with the technology of the day. Word began to spread about the cave. Uh, it became more um, known. Newspapers, when they started doing stories about the cave, they would illustrate. You know, there was no photography at this time. So what they would do, they would hire an artist or a sketch mm-hmm. artist, and some would maybe come to the cave. Some of them wouldn't, but they would illustrate and draw uh, some fan- fantastic, <laughs> some of them not realistic, but, right. you know, it promoted the cave. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it became more and more. Uh, now, this this young man died in 1856. Um, he had, he had uh, stayed in the cave all his life. I think the, he had retired maybe the last year of his life. Uh, maybe he was sick or something. But anyway, um, many others cave guides also were involved and it's too numerous to mention but being a cave guide at that time must have been a pretty jazzy job i mean people were fascinated by these guys because again well they the were modern day explorers for exactly. the time yeah right it's like what men on the moon or anything else now they they were as these guys uh most of them i don't know of any of them that were killed in the cave but died of natural causes they were buried in a in a cemetery down there, and it's still there, and you can go visit it today. It's called the Old Guide Cemetery. Huh. Um, they were from all over the world began to come to the cave. There was people just from your foreign countries because there's, there's not hardly anything like this. You know, this is one of the biggest caves in the world or the biggest cave in the world. The temperature stays 54 degrees all the time. Now, there was a doctor, Grogan, John Grogan, that purchased the cave in 1839. For $10,000, by the way. Wow. So, you know, who knows if that was high or not, but he purchased it. He was a Louisville doctor, and he thought the cool, constant temperature would help with consumption or tuberculosis. He built huts in the cave and to treat patients. Now, this didn't last long because, unfortunately, Dr. Grogan contracted the disease himself and died in 1849, so he had the cave about 10 years I don't think the cave had anything to do with him contracting it. It was probably because he was... Well, the lack of fresh air, the, I'm sure the bat guano. A cave, I, to me, wouldn't be an ideal place. Right, and but, again, 
this was the time. Yeah, they and they knew nothing of germs. Right, right. They, there was no. They we hadn't got there till Civil War times. Right. Uh, you can still see the remnants today if you take a tour down there of of the of those huts uh, and the and a lot of the people that died from a consumption or mm-hmm. tuberculosis. They're buried in a in the guide cemetery as well. So if you go down there and visit that cemetery, you can see where that is. Uh, there was a large flat, um, they call it the corpse rock, that's in there, and that's where they would lay the bodies out before burial. And if you go down there again today, it's still there. They haven't changed anything. Huh. Um, all the years of occupation from early Indians uh, to the to the uh, saltpeter explorers and the in the consumption, uh, the death toll climbed. So the cemetery has several several bodies there from all kinds of different Errors, time periods. Right, yeah. right. So so naturally when you have places where tragic events happen, you have ghost stories. Oh, okay. So some of the ghost stories, some of the things that uh, they did in they uh, there was paranormal activity witnessed by several guides over a period of time. And there was a there's a place in there called uh, known as the Methodist Church where Miners, when they were working in there mining saltpeter, on Sunday they would go and worship. And I guess these guys work seven days a week. I don't know, but the the guys after would turn off the. That's one of the places where you go in. They turn off the lights and they demonstrate how dark. Most of us don't know what dark is. No. You know, we have city lights and we have all kinds of things that, and and when you go in a cave and you turn off the lights, you cannot see your hand. You can see nothing but black. Yeah. It, it, you don't, you lose sense of direction very quickly. Um, so in this darkness, they would turn out the lights and then they would turn on an oil lantern or electric lights to demonstrate what like like excuse me life was like in that day with just an oil lantern. Well, in one of the guides, uh, when he turned out the lights, they looked and a lantern came on, and it was a it was a, a black man standing there. When now, this is the strange part. He had his wife and two children with him. He was wearing white pants and a and a, and a big hat, which the guides wore back then. Uh-huh. And he was standing there holding his children's hands. And it, they just stood there and looked at him, and then he slowly faded away. Wow. And it was witnessed by, that's not been witnessed by one group, but by several. Really? So, th- who is he? Is he Mr. Bishop? Yeah, his family. But you know, the wife and the children. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. There was another occasion when a uh, a black guy was seen beside a pile of rocks by two different tour groups that came through, and he was standing up there with the lantern, and they looked in it, and most of them thought that that was someone working there or someone connected. But when they go looked closer. He was wearing those white pants, that floppy hat. And, again, is this Stephen Bishop, yeah, former tour guide? I don't know. In February 1859, Knickerbocker Magazine published a tragedy of Mammoth Cave. Now, this is a really weird story to me, Brian. And it said that a young lady, her name was Melissa, and she was, uh, you know, 15, 16 years old, and she had a boyfriend and his name, last name was Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-E-I-G-H. Hmm. And he was a native of Boston. And she was 
somewhat taken by this young man, and she lived close to the cave. She lived in that area, and she said she uh, she knew that her father didn't care. She didn't like her going in the cave and everything, but she wanted to slip away and take him down to this cave and, and scare him, basically. Mm-hmm. So she takes him in the cave, and they go back in there near where the uh, uh, Echo River is, and she knew of a side passage where she could slip away and leave him in there by himself. Well, I mean, that's kind of a cruel trick. I mean, yeah. especially for someone maybe who'd never been in the cave. I don't yeah. know that. <laughs> but anyway, she slipped out and thought she'd scare him. Now, here's what seems strange about the story of Harold, and that is she went on home and left him there, thinking he could just find his way out. And after a day or two passed, she realized that he's missing or someone had told her. Only a day or two. Yeah. Now, that <laughs> that didn't seem reasonable, but it's what the story says. So she panicked, and she ran back in the cave, and... She, they said she hollered and, and searched till she was exhausted and lost her voice. Um, several years later, on her deathbed, she confessed to this because evidently she did not tell people that she had left him in the cave and pulled a trick on him. And she said on her deathbed, there was she, she admitted to that. Now, as cave guides, they hear voices sometimes in there. Mm-hmm. And they're wondering if it's her looking for him or him looking for his way out. But a lot of the noises, sounds, come from a woman. Really? Yes. Uh, is, is this Melissa looking for him? Or is this maybe him looking for her? Now, one of the most famous things, Brian, that happened in Mammoth Cave area was the death of Floyd Collins. I think a lot of Kentuckians, that, especially people that, are, that know of Mammoth Cave, mm-hmm. know of this story. Now, this is around 1929, I think it was, um, that Floyd Collins was a cave explorer. He lived in that area. Uh, he had been in several caves and had a lot of experience. Um, but he believed that, um, it, I think, uh, Sand Cave and Crystal Cave connected to the Mammoth Cave complex, and he was, it, it turned out, right that Mm -hmm. they did but uh, he on January uh, the 30th of 1925 I'm sorry not 29 25 against his father's wishes his father thought that sand cave was dangerous and he thought crystal cave was dangerous and 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 for good reason Uh, Floyd Collins went into the cave for an extended trip he was in there for a day or two the passages in that cave are not like Mammoth Cave, the main parts of Mammoth Cave that we go through today. They were uh, a little more dangerous. Mm-hmm. There was rocks that would fall. Uh, you didn't see stalactites and stalagmites. Where that's a sign that that cave has been like it is for centuries. Right. Which which is one of the things I look for. I've been in a few caves and I always look for that. If you don't see that, it's probably not a good cave to be in. Yeah. Well, he got back in a certain part of the cave there, the, uh, and he his lights started to run out. So he started his way back out, and he got his foot. A big boulder fell as he was climbing out and, and pinned his left foot, crushed mm. it, and he could not get his foot loose. He could not, he could not work his way out. Well, 
um, after not coming home that day, they, the friends and family started looking for him, and they, he had told them where he was. So they went down in the cave, and they found him. He was still alive, mm. but he was pinned, and pinned very well, not that anyone could get to him very easily. Um, there were geologists. Uh, there were engineers. A lot of people came. The Louisville Fire Department, believe it or not, came all the way from Louisville. Uh, then the news of the the entrapment of Floyd Collins started to spread. The Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper uh, sent a reporter down there, and his name was William Burke Miller, and he was a small man, <laughs> <laughs> which always helps in these situations. Yeah. So he actually went down in the cave. Now, believe it or not, Brian, with the man trapped down there, he went down in the cave and interviewed him <laughs> as they were trying to make plans to to free him from there. Um, he, the, the uh, miners began to come. Thousands of people came from all over the country. This vigil lasted for 15 days. Oh, my. And uh, it turned out that Floyd, that, that really they, it was such a complicated thing to get to him that even the National Guard and the Red Cross, and I mean, this was just a zoo down there, and people trying to drill down, and in 18 days, they got to him as far as being able to get to him to get him free. But unfortunately, he only lived 15 days. He'd been dead for three days. Oh, man. The last person to talk to Floyd Collins was a boyhood friend. And his, his lifelong friend, uh, his name was Johnny Gerald. And uh, so anyway, the tragic event. Now, the strangest of this story is just, just beginning because after the accident, uh, they decided not to bring his body out, but to leave it in the cave. And after uh, they had a funeral there on in the site of the entrance of the cave, and, and a year later, I think or two, in 1927, uh, Floyd's father sold the cave and the land with Floyd still in the cave. Um, some family members protested, but anyway, that's what happened. The new owner of the cave exhumed Colin's body from the cave and placed it in a, a bronze coffin and displayed it in Crystal Cave <laughs> in 1927. <laughs> I don't know the. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, P.T. Barnum in him. Well, you know, tourists, again, this was right. big-time yeah. tourist business there at that time. And then in, in, in uh, 18, excuse me, 1929, his corpse was stolen. And it was looked for and investigated by the, the by the officials, and they found it wrapped in burlap in some bushes in the area with the left leg missing, the <laughs> one that had been trapped. So, and of course, you know, I, I can't imagine <laughs> why anybody would want to steal a corpse, but yeah. anyway, they did. After the theft, then the body was taken back to the cave where it was where he'd passed away to start with, and it was secured in a place where it couldn't be removed very easily. You know, okay. it was it was it was kind of reminding Is it of, still there? No. In 1951, it was reburied. Uh, no, excuse me. It was there till 1951, and then reburied in Crystal Cave. And in 1989, the body was removed and buried in Flint Ridge Cemetery in that area. You know, that poor guy has not been able to rest in peace. The missing leg has never been found. Uh, in 1941, Franklin Roosevelt made Mammoth Cave a national park. 
And Floyd Collins' uh, story, uh, it, it just it just helped enhance the story as part of the cave history of that area. Now, people that live and have worked around that cave yeah. said they hear voices from that cave. And so they heard clearly voices, help me, help me, help me, Johnny, help me. Wow. Could that be his old friend Johnny trying could, to get him out? Could be. That's one of our favorite ghost stories of Mammoth Cave. Well, before we wrap this up, you know I, I love good conspiracies. Mm-hmm. And I would like to do a future episode on, and, and when you mentioned the mummies and stuff that they found, brought just kind of brought it to my mind, is, you know, giants in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with those in the Native American legends and that they've boned? Yes. I'm... Do you have any books or anything on that that um, we could do an episode on that? No, but we'll we'll research it and see what we can come up with. And you know, um, because I, you know, you, I, you, I, I look at these things on the internet. I look for weird stuff like this. But you know, they talk about the red-haired giants in Kentucky and the bones that have been found and then removed, and nobody knows, you know, right. uh, what happened to them. But there's actual news articles, you know, of reporting, hey, they found giant skeletons buried here on this farm, kind of a thing. Yes. Yes, I've heard that, and I, I think that goes all the way back to two UK professors when university was first uh, founded, and I think it was Warren K. Moorhead was one of the professors, and a guy named Funkhauser, and uh, there's a building still at UK named mm-hmm. the Funkhauser Building. I think that they were the archaeologists who did a lot of the early work that, that found some of those skeletal remains of some very large people, and uh, maybe still a mystery, I don't know. I have got into that far enough to tell you. Well, maybe we can do that in a future episode. All right, that's all for this episode of Uncommon History. We hope you enjoyed your journey through the past and that you discovered some new and exciting facts about the history of our world around us. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to our feed to stay informed about new episodes. Um, All of our links are at the top of our show notes in the description. We look forward to bringing you more Uncommon Stories of the Past. Until next time. Uncommon History was created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.